TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. And now... You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. Always a privilege, always a treat to have Dr. Rayfield Medoff on a broadcast. He's a founding director of the David S. Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies, author of more than 20 books about Jewish history, the Holocaust. His latest book is called America and the Holocaust, a documentary history published by the Jewish Publication Society and the University of Nebraska Press. But we invited him to our broadcast because he wrote a fascinating article about Nancy Pelosi's father and the Jews. Good to have you back. Hi, Zeph. Thanks for having me. And thank you. So I know there's a lot of attention. Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, and, and she had bipartisan support, and people were happy that she took a strong stand. But you wrote a fascinating article that she learned this from her father. Her father, during the Holocaust, took a strong stand, even though he was uh, somebody who was a Democrat, and it wasn't popular being a Democratic congressman to go against FDR, the president, but he did so. So well, let's go back to those years. You know, there's an interesting theme that runs through much of Nancy Pelosi's political career, and that is with regard to Chinese human rights abuses, she has often been very outspoken, um, much more so than many of her colleagues in the Democratic Party, and occasionally bring her into conflict with a Democratic president. It's to her credit that, for example, she differed from President Bill Clinton with regard to China's oppression of Tibet. And now in recent days, we've been reading about how the Biden administration was trying to pressure her to cancel a planned visit to Taiwan because the communist Chinese are upset. Um, And yet she defied her president and did it anyway. And that led me to think about what influences in her life might have um, helped shape this uh, approach. Many years ago, in the course of my research on the Bergson Group, these were Holocaust rescue advocates in the United States who use newspaper ads and rallies to try to pressure the Roosevelt administration to help Jews during the Holocaust. And, of course, the, play, the playwright Ben Hecht. Yes, Hecht was part of that of that Bergson group. They were what today we would call a political action committee. Um, but they were very much dissidents in those days. They were operating outside the mainstream of the, of the established Jewish organizations. One of the the hallmarks of the Berkson Group's activism was that it was very good at mobilizing members of Congress to try to put pressure on President Franklin Roosevelt on the Jewish refugee issue. And to Berkson's credit, he didn't just approach congressmen who um, were in his political camp, but he reached out to both Republicans and Democrats. And that's one of the more more, um, instructive aspects of the history of the Berkson Group, this, um, this willingness to reach across the aisle Because when it came to something like genocide, to rescuing Jewish refugees, it really shouldn't have mattered whether one was a Democrat or a Republican. But in terms of putting pressure on FDR, it was very important to try to bring Democratic congressmen into the fold. And I found in my research that Nancy Pelosi's father, Thomas D'Alessandro Jr., who was a Democratic congressman from Maryland, was one of those who was a supporter of the Berkson Group's somewhat controversial activities during the 1940s. Let's set the stage because FDR, the President Roosevelt, didn't really want to get involved in saving Jews and helping Jews. Um, 
and he was forced to do so because of the Berkson Group and other pressure. But let's look at his mindset and what he didn't do and what, at the end of the day, what came about because of Nancy Pelosi's father and others. President Roosevelt's policy toward the issue of the Jewish refugees during the Holocaust was best summed up in Professor David Wyman's famous book titled The Abandonment of the Jews. And indeed, much of the history of how Americans responded to the Holocaust is a, is a tragic story of abandonment. My research, however, also focuses on the minority who did speak out, people like the Bergson Group and other activists who tried to move President Roosevelt. In those days, immigration, and I'm bringing up immigration because that was one of the obvious ways in which the United States might have helped Jews who were trying to escape from the Holocaust. Immigration to America was governed by a quota system, which set a maximum number of people who could come to America for any particular country each year. So, for example, the quota from Germany in the 1930s and 1940s was approximately 27,000. But the fascinating thing about uh, Jewish immigration from Germany to America in those years is that that quota was almost never filled. In 11 of FDR's 12 years in office, the quota from Germany was filled only once. And in most of those years, the quota was more than 75% unfilled. Only, only a quarter or less of those quota spots were used. And at the end of the year, those unused immigration places didn't, didn't um, go over into the next year. They were discarded. So altogether, if you add up the number of unused quota places from Germany in the 30s, and then later from Axis-occupied countries in the 40s, we find that nearly 200,000 Jews could have been brought to America within the existing quota laws without having any public controversy or any change um, in, the, in the immigration system except to simply allow the quotas to be used. But President Roosevelt and his State Department, which was in charge of immigration, had a deliberate policy of trying to suppress the number of Jewish refugee immigrants far below what the law allowed. They set up administrative obstacles, things that made it difficult for people to qualify for visas. And as a result, many, many um, quota places that could have been used to save lives were simply squandered. Would you say FDR was anti-Semitic? It's a question that I'm often asked because it's natural to wonder what, what are the motives when a president makes uh, any particular policy decision? And as we know, there are usually a mixture of motives. There are political motives, questions of political interest, popular opinion. There are issues involving Congress. FDR did face a, um, a difficult Congress, which was uh, largely opposed to immigration and uh, very isolationist. And of course, uh, it, those were the years of the Great Depression. There was a lot of public opposition to immigration and also a lot of domestic anti-Semitism. Well, the Christian Front had as many as 100,000 members, and they were a Christian group that actually wanted to establish a dictatorship and get rid of the Jews in America. You had in New York, you had groups like the Bund uh, in, the east, in, the, in the east side of Manhattan marching. So you had a lot of anti-Semitism. There were hundreds, over 100 hate groups, so I understand the climate. But at the same time, the fact is they could have taken in immigrants under the quota that already existed. So that, asked, that motivates me to ask the question where he had to be kicking and yelling to do something in 1944, but his gut wasn't there. Nancy Pelosi's father bucked the president. Well, as I research the question of whether or not anti-Semitism 
played a role in FDR's mindset and decision-making. I have focused on three particular ways in which the United States, the Roosevelt administration, could have saved Jews. And in each case, I've asked myself, what could have motivated the president to, to make such great efforts not to save them? The first is the question of immigration, the unused quota places. Um, why go out of his way to suppress immigration below what the law allowed? He could have simply said to the State Department, quietly use the existing quotas. We're not going to change them. I'm not going to start a public controversy, but the law is the law. That was number one. Number two, when Jewish groups like the Bergson Group asked the Roosevelt administration to take steps to help the Jews, they were often told there are no ships available to bring refugees back from, from Europe. But in fact, we know, and it was known at the time, that ships which were bringing soldiers and, and, and weapons to Europe, known as liberty ships, would um, unload their cargo um, in Europe and return to America empty. In fact, because they were empty, they had to be loaded down with something to keep them from capsizing. This material known as ballast uh, was coming, was, came from rubble of bombed out English cities. So why not allow Jews to come back on those ships and serve as the ballast, for example? And the third is perhaps the most famous uh, episode from that period, the refusal of the Roosevelt administration to bomb the railways and bridges leading to Auschwitz. And the reason that's important is because we know, and again, it was known at the time, that American planes were bombing right around Auschwitz within a few miles of the gas chambers in 1944. So again, why did the administration lie to American Jewish groups and say it was impossible for American planes to reach Auschwitz when they knew, in fact, they were bombing German oil factories in and around Auschwitz for months in the summer and fall of 1944. So with these three dilemmas um, before me, I, I, I examined the question of Roosevelt's personal mindset and whether any personal prejudices could have played a role. Over the course of the past decade, um, I and other historians have found about 15 comments that Roosevelt made in private, which were unquestionably what we would call anti-Semitic. For example, these these are questions in which he would make a disparaging reference to Jewish blood. In some of the comments, he complains about there being too many Jews in various professions. There are several comments where he, where he talks about how you can't allow too many Jews to live in one particular part of the country, or they will start to dominate the economy or dominate the culture. He tended to look at Jews as being a generally unwelcome, um, an unwelcome part of American society. Franklin Roosevelt's vision for America was a country that would be overwhelmingly white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant. In saying that, I'm not, I'm not um, suggesting anything unusual or radical. That's well known and described by his many biographers. But what I'm suggesting is that all of his comments about Jews being um, too aggressive and, and, and threatening and, and disloyal, these suggest to me that the reason he didn't want more Jewish refugees coming in through the existing quotas is because he did not want to have too many Jews in America. He said so himself in, in so many words. Now, the fascinating corollary to this is research done on Roosevelt's decision to intern Japanese Americans in 1942, not, not research by me, but by a professor uh, at, at Montreal named Greg Robinson, who wrote a book called By Order of the President, revealed how in the 1920s and later, Roosevelt wrote in some newspaper articles and said in private comments, 
a number of very ugly things about Asian Americans and about how they could not be trusted. And there was something in their blood that made them disloyal. And you can't allow them to concentrate in large numbers around the country. And this apparently was the background to his decision to order the internment of 130,000 Japanese Americans without any evidence that they were disloyal. In comparing the things that Roosevelt said privately about Asian Americans and the things that have been documented that he was saying about Jews, I found a common thread that he saw both Asians and Jews as essentially undesirable. He accepted the fact that there were a certain number already in America, but he did not want more of them coming in and that, and therefore he could do, he could shut the doors, even though Jews were fleeing for their lives from Germany, or he could have Japanese Americans rounded up, stripped of their possessions in effect, and sent off to detention camps in the desert. So it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It is a duck. He's a racist and anti-Semite. He didn't incarcerate Germans, uh, which were more dangerous. There were lots of problems with German-Americans, including some of the work for Hitler in the United States. He didn't incarcerate Germans, but Japanese, and didn't allow Jews, and that certainly speaks to who he is. Our guest is Dr. Raphael Medoff. He's a founding director of David S. Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies, author of more than 20 books. We've been through quite a few of them, not all of them about Jewish history, the Holocaust. His latest book is America and the Holocaust, a documentary history published by the JPS and University of Nebraska Press. So Roosevelt was a racist. It was an anti-Semite, at least from how you described him. But also the climate. You mentioned about the bombing of Auschwitz. According to Professor Joseph Adursky in a book, uh, he did a historian about the army, he says the army was very anti-Semitic. The reason why they didn't bomb Moshe they viewed Jews as being subhuman beings, similar to what Goebbels wrote about the Jews as the army documents about the Jews. So you had a lot of anti-Semitism prevalent in all different areas where you had the Christian Front, you had the Bund, you had the Defense Department, you had Roosevelt. You had a lot of factors involved. So it makes it even more amazing that you had Nancy Pelosi's father, Congressman Representative uh, D'Alessandro, was able to buck the trend. You can see what the power the president has and look at the society around. That makes it even more impressive. Because even though there were a lot of anti-Semites in those days and there are a lot of anti-Semites today, um, there were also many good people. And there were um, decent people like Thomas D'Alessandro Jr., um, who was a congressman in the 1940s and then later, later uh, mayor of Baltimore, um, who simply out of out of basic humanitarianism as the goodness of his heart wanted to help the Jews in their hour of need. So even though President Roosevelt regarded the Bergson group um, as practically his enemy, um, he deeply resented their pressure and their protests and their newspaper ads. D'Alessandro, a loyal Roosevelt Democrat, um, sided with the Bergson group. I, I should note that D'Alessandro was so uh, so supportive of President Roosevelt that he even named his first son, Nancy Pelosi's eldest brother, Franklin Roosevelt de Alessandro. And yet, and yet, despite a congressman, of course, always needing the president uh, for political support, yet he defied the president. He put his name on those Bergson Group ads. Um, and in doing so, he made a statement. And that's exactly what FDR needed to hear. He needed to know that the, the cries for rescue of the Jews were not just coming from his critics, from Republicans or others, but they were coming from stalwart liberal Democrats from his own party, like Nancy Pelosi's father. Was, so he, over, was, he, over, was he overall a liberal? Is that how we would classify him? 
Congressman D'Alessandro certainly was uh, a liberal. Um, and, um, and Nancy Pelosi learned um, the essence of her politics at his knee. When I discovered um, uh, Congressman D'Alessandro's connections to the Bergson Group, I brought it to the attention of Speaker Pelosi some years ago. And uh, she wrote a book called, um, uh, in 2008, called Know Your Power, um, encouraging young women, young American women, to become involved in the political world. And there she talked about how thrilled she was to learn this about her father. She had not known this previously, that he had been a supporter of the Bergson Group's um, efforts to promote rescue. And she connected his support for the Bergson Group and for rescuing Jews, she connected that to her own um, outspokenness with regard to China when she confronted Bill Clinton. And that leads me to think um, that that some of that was in her mind as well when this past week she defied President Biden and went to Taiwan to show her support for the Taiwanese government against the communist Chinese. Was it interesting that her father never discussed with her the role he played? They listened, sign up to the Bergson group. They were a right-wing group, and he certainly went against the mainstream, went against the president. I don't know if there was any repercussions by doing so. The president wields tremendous power. We see it even today. So I'm just surprised that she didn't even know about it until you brought it to her attention. You know, President Roosevelt passed away in office in early 1945 um, with America on the verge of victory in World War II. And, um, and he passed into history as a, as a venerated figure, and deservedly so. Um, and it may be, I'm just speculating here, that, um, that Congressman D'Alessandro was uncomfortable you know, speaking critically about the late president. Um, I would also say that his association with the Bergson Group was not a major um, aspect of his political life, but let me just also add that during the administration of Harry Truman, who succeeded FDR, D'Alessandro continued his association with the Bergson Group, spoke at rallies for the creation of the State of Israel that were held in Baltimore in 1947. Again, at a time when the Truman administration found the Bergson Group to be a real irritant, and Truman was not, as we know, an enthusiastic supporter of the no, idea of the Jewish state, um, right up until the moment that he finally supported its creation. And so once again... And he also had some know, choice you know, words about Jews too, right? He also said things, terrible he, things about Jews. He certainly did. So D'Alessandro, again, defied a Democratic president in order to, to say and do the right thing. And that's something worth remembering. And um, clearly, Speaker Pelosi, in retrospect, feels that that streak of, of political courage and humanitarianism that, her, that, that characterized her father's political career was something that she considered to be and considers to be uh, inspiring. Now, it certainly is inspiring. I, I was curious because you also write, and this is an important factor, FDR, President Roosevelt, did not want to save Jews, did not want to bring them in. The record also shows even American Jewish citizens overseas were not helped by the United States to get them back to America. That's another book, I don't know if you've written, that another chapter in the, in, in the terrible things that, that were done to Jews during, in this country during World War II. But uh, President Roosevelt was forced in early 1944, thanks to Nancy Pelosi's father and others, to establish a war refugee board, which did save Jews. Well, throughout World War II and the years before that, President Roosevelt very stubbornly resisted 
all the cries from the Jewish American Jewish community to do something to help the Jewish refugees. The Bergson Group in 1943 turned to Congressman D'Alessandro and other members of Congress with an idea that they could get Congress to put pressure on Roosevelt since President, the White House, and the State Department were not responding to uh, appeals for, for rescue action. So the Bergson Group went to Congress and convinced members of Congress to introduce a resolution calling for the creation of a government rescue agency. The president strongly opposed this for the same reasons we've been discussing. And in fact, he sent his Assistant Secretary of State, Breckenridge Long, to Capitol Hill to testify against that resolution. What happened was an interesting um, kind of twist of fate that nobody expected. And that was that Assistant Secretary Long, in his testimony, went so overboard in his um, attempts to claim that America already had been rescuing Jews that he presented wildly exaggerated statistics to Congress, which then leaked out, caused a controversy, embarrassed the administration, and suddenly the resolution, which FDR was trying to kill, was on the verge of being uh, adopted by Congress. In fact, it was, it was passed unanimously by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It was headed for a full vote in the Senate, and it was just then, and now I'm speaking about the very beginning of 1944, an election year, it was just then that Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau uh, and, and some of his senior aides in the Treasury Department decided that they needed to go to President Roosevelt and convince him to create this government rescue agency rather than have Congress embarrass him and force him into it by passing this resolution that the Bergson Group had been promoting. So uh, this last-minute intervention by Morgenthau and his staff essentially presented FDR with a political dilemma. He could continue resisting all the pressure for rescuing the Jews, or he could throw a bone to the Jewish community. And that's what he did. He decided to unilaterally create the very rescue agency that he and his administration had been opposing up until five minutes before. And that's how the War Refugee Board came to be established. The president gave it almost no funding. And this is a remarkable fact um, that 90% of the funding for this US government agency was provided by private Jewish organizations, mostly the Joint and also the World Jewish Congress. But fortunately, the War Refugee Board was staffed by some of the same aides to Morgenthau um, who had been so crucial in first bringing the, um, the whole issue to President Roosevelt uh, and bringing the War Refugee Board into existence. So with that dedicated staff and with money provided by private Jewish groups, the War Refugee Board was able to accomplish near miracles in the last 15 months of the war. Among other things, the board sponsored and financed the life-saving work of Raoul Wallenberg in Nazi-occupied Budapest. It's not that there's a direct line from members of Congress like de Alessandro to the work of Raoul Wallenberg, but like most things in history, there were a chain of events that eventually led to something good, and that was pressure in Congress on Roosevelt from the Bergson Group, from Democrats and from Republicans in Congress, leading Morgenthau to confront the president, leading the president to create the War Refugee Board, and then the War Refugee Board um, taking on an attitude of, you know, it was if there's a will, there's a way. And they found ways to rescue Jews. For years, FDR and his spokesman had been saying, there's no way to rescue the Jews. We'd like to, but it's impossible. But the War Refugee Board proved that, in fact, if there had simply been um, a desire, an effort, 
people could be saved. And, and historians calculate that during those fifth, last 15 months of the war, the War Refugee Board played a major role in the rescue of about 200,000 Jews from the Holocaust. Imagine how many more might have been saved if the board had been established even a few months earlier, if, if FDR and his administration had not been uh, trying to block that resolution and prevent the board from coming into existence. So a lot of Jewish blood on Roosevelt's hands, even though American Jews venerated Roosevelt. What was the initial expression? Demvelt, Yenvelt, and Roosevelt. This world, the other world, and Roosevelt. American Jews loved him, but I guess they didn't realize, or did they? Did they realize the extent of how he didn't, how he hated Jews or he didn't like them? They did not realize um, the extent to which the administration could have rescued more Jews, but was obstructing rescue and was even suppressing news about the mass killings. Average American Jews did not realize it because the most prominent Jewish leaders of that era, like Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, were deeply loyal to President Roosevelt and did not share with the Jewish community at large what he and they knew about the president's abandonment of Europe's Jews. A few moments that we have left, Nancy Pelosi's father was a hero. He was able to buck his party, his buck his president, and push uh, for resettling of Jews in America, which was successful with the War Refugee Board. You mentioned he was a supporter of Israel. How, are you going to try to interview Speaker Pelosi about her father or have engage in a conversation? I'm sure you may have more information that she may not be aware of. Well, my colleagues and I have done extensive research in Congressman D'Alessandro's papers and other and other uh, sources, and we provided that information to Speaker Pelosi, to her staff. Um, so I, they, they have the full story now about her, her father's political courage in these episodes. And, you know, you know, I just want to add, we live in a time when everything seems to be divided along partisan um, political lines, when when. All the Democrats seem to line up on one side, all the Republicans on the other. It, for me, um, as a historian, as a human being, um, I find it um, encouraging to read about uh, members of Congress like D'Alessandro and, and others um, who did not allow uh, party loyalty to determine stands they should take on humanitarian issues. Absolutely. And you're right. He would have been proud of his Nancy's, his daughter Nancy's stand on Taiwan. And she's been strong about human rights and she's been consistent and bucked both Republicans and Democratic presidents, as you write, from Bush to Clinton. Uh, and even now to, to Joe Biden was not happy that the president was not happy that she went to Taiwan. Um, as, as we close out, as far as Israel's concerned, has she taken very strong? I know she's been a supporter of Israel. Has she taken strong stands as well regarding Israel? As far well, as certainly, you... certainly, Speaker Pelosi has been consistently pro-Israel throughout her career. I don't think anyone accuses her mm -hmm. of anything else. There's, of course, a great struggle in the Democratic Party now about attitudes towards Israel. And there are those who are unfriendly to Israel and would like her to be unfriendly to Israel. But fortunately, she has so far resisted those pressures. Because there's pressure on her to even get rid of, the, you know, the, the squad, the AOCs, the Elon, uh, the, the, and the others that are very anti-Israel that have a big role in the Democratic Party. And so far, the Democratic, not just her, but the Democratic you know, leadership has not really done anything to stop the squad. Well, both parties today face uh, the problem of extreme elements who bring dishonor to their parties. And, um, and, and, and the battles within both major parties may go on for years until a clear direction um, is resolved. But fortunately, broadly speaking, both parties um, are, are pro-Israel 
Um, their party platforms are strongly pro-Israel. And um, but what will what lies ahead? Who knows? Because as you note, there are younger members of Congress, younger Democrats who are much less sympathetic to Israel, and whether they will ultimately um, determine the shape of the party remains to be seen. Dr. Raphael Medoff, founding director of the David S. Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies, author of more than 20 books. His latest one is called America and the Holocaust, a Documentary History. Thank you for sharing some thoughts about Nancy Pelosi's father, uh, which is just amazing how she's following in his footsteps, championing human rights. Look forward to having you back. Do you have an idea what your next book is going to be out, be about, number 21? There is another book in the works. Um, it's a little too soon to share any information about it. Um, but before long, you'll be hearing about it. And thank you for joining us. Thank you. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One of the most important Jewish institutions in the world today is TalkLine with Zeb Braniff. He is so smart, and he is so innovative, and he has so many interesting guests. I don't know what Yiddishkeit, I don't know what New York, I don't know what the world would do without Zeb. So Zeb, Yashikoch, may you go from strength to strength and keep, keep informing us and educating us and keep fighting for Jewish values. Thanks for listening. For continuous Jewish programs, hawklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the talklinenetwork.com.